Once upon a time, there was a little boy who lovingly and carefully built himself a toy sailboat. He spent a great deal of time getting the sailboat just so. And when it was finished, he looked with pride upon the toy that he had built. And then one day, he took the boat to the park to play with it out upon the water. He was excited to see if it would really float like it was supposed to. The sailboat floated perfectly as it was meant to float. He played with it for a couple of hours and then to his distress, a strong wind came up and blew the sailboat out on the lake beyond his reach. He tried and tried to catch it, but he never could. He went home broken hearted because he had lost his prized possession. A few weeks later, he was walking by a pawn shop when he saw his sailboat in the window. Excitedly, he ran into the pawn shop and he told the owner, that is my boat, I made it. The pawn shop owner told him that someone had found it at the lake and, had, and he had bought it from them and the boy was more than welcome to purchase it from him. So the boy went home determined to do whatever he could to earn the money necessary to be able to buy back his sailboat. After a couple of weeks, he had earned the money and he went and paid the shop owner for the boat. And as he walked out of the store, he hugged the boat tightly and he said, little sailboat, you are mine, doubly mine. First, I made you and now I have bought you. In a way, this story illustrates God's relationship with humanity. Scripture teaches us that God created humanity to live with him in perpetual communion. He created us in a perfect environment and He gave humanity a, a job to do. He provided for their every need and He gave only one rule. They were not to eat of the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden. But that one tree became the focus of what they were tempted by. Aided by Satan and his temptations, they took the forbidden fruit, they ate and they sinned. This sin brought separation. And Adam and Eve hid from God. But God wasn't content to leave His creation separated from Him, hiding from Him. He searched and He found Adam and Eve. He killed an animal to make a covering for their sin. And He gave a promise that one day a Redeemer would come that would set right all that had gone wrong in the garden. All of that happens by Genesis chapter 3. And the rest of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, detail man's rebellion against God and God's consistent, continual pursuit of man. And when the time was right, God sent this Redeemer into the world. Jesus Christ came to be our Redeemer. And now those who trust in Jesus, to those who trust in Jesus, God says, you are mine, doubly mine. First, I made you, and now I have bought you. What does it mean that we have been bought with a price? Why did we have to be bought? What was the price that was paid? Let's open your Bible to Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 12, to see the answer to these questions. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. 
Ephesians 1 and 7. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to the good pleasure, to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. In whom also, having obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purchase or the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. The title of the message this morning is The Price of Redemption. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come this morning and we do bow and surrender this time to you. Lord, in the in what's left of this service today, Lord, we, we surrender it to you that you would help us in this moment to lay aside any cares of life, any distracting thoughts that you would protect our minds from the enemy who would seek to, to steal the good seed and keep us blinded to the gospel. That God, your Holy Spirit, would come and He would take your word and He would make it living and active and speak to us so that we would know you are here, you are at work in our lives. Father, today we need you to open our eyes to behold the wondrous things that your word has for us today. Make us to understand the price that was paid for our redemption. Make us to understand the greatness of the cost that our freedom has cost you and has cost Jesus. Father, those of us that would say Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, let this renew our zeal and our passion for Him. Let this cause us to love Him more and more so that He is the driving force of our lives. And we would say as the Apostle Paul that the love of Christ compels me. For those that are here today that have not known you, never trusted in Christ, oh, drive home in their hearts what you have done to secure their redemption. Bring them to a place where they would turn over their lives to you and they would cry out, Jesus, come and be Lord over my life and Savior, redeem me. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Guide me that I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way in all things. We ask in the beautiful name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at this passage, we see that everything rises and falls on Jesus. The repetition of the phrases in whom and in Christ remind us that all of God's plans for redemption come through Jesus. It's all about Him. And that's really kind of the main thrust of this passage is what we see in verse 7. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. The rest of this passage is really built upon that first phrase, in whom we have redemption through His blood. Now, so as we talk about the price of redemption, we see that the blood of Jesus is the price of our redemption. The blood of Jesus is the price 
of our redemption. Now everything else in verses 7 through 12 flow out of being redeemed through the blood of Jesus. Those who are redeemed through the blood of Jesus receive the forgiveness of sins. Those who are redeemed through the blood of Jesus experience the riches of God's grace. Those who are redeemed through the blood of Jesus experience, or learn the mystery of God's will. Those who are redeemed through the blood of Jesus are gathered together with others who are redeemed through the blood of Jesus. Those who are redeemed through the blood of Jesus receive an inheritance. Those who are redeemed through the blood of Jesus live in such a way that they bring praise to God's glory. We're going to today focus mostly on the price of redemption. Because that is something that we can forget if we're not careful. Now to understand redemption and the price of redemption, we really have to know what redemption is and what it means. To redeem, it means to purchase and set free by paying a price. It carries with it the idea of deliverance or setting someone free after paying a ransom. Imagine someone that is being held captive and is completely unable to free themselves. The only way they can be freed is if someone pays a price. Someone comes along, pays the price, and then sets them free. That is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. But it does raise a couple of questions. What is holding us captive that makes it necessary for us to have a Redeemer? And what is the price? What does it mean that the price that was paid was the blood of Jesus? The Bible tells us there are basically three captors holding us captive making it necessary for Jesus to be our redeemer first is the sway of satan it's common in our enlightened culture to downplay or ignore the reality of a being named satan of ultimate evil who seeks our destruction now while it is common in our day Scripture does not do this. Not only does Scripture not downplay or ignore the reality of Satan, Scripture affirms his power over all humanity. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Picture in Ephesians 2, 2, is that all people naturally live according to the course of this world. It's just there's a a way laid out for them and they follow it. And as they follow it, they're following the prince of the power of the air who is the one who, who designed this course that is laid out for them. He is actively at work in all who are living in disobedience to God. That's a huge statement. Every person on this planet who has not surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord is at this moment under the sway of Satan. And he uses this influence to blind them to the truth of the gospel and their need for Jesus. Now we mustn't take this and say, That they're blinded to their need for Jesus in one particular way. 
Right? Because often what we do is we take their blinded to their need for Jesus because of this great and terrible sin. So we look at people who are living in, in deeply grievous sin and we say, oh, now those people, Ephesians 2, 2, that's them. But I can remember growing up in church and the picture that was typically painted for me was that unbelievers were just half a step from being serial killers. And that anyone that had any sort of moral fiber or backbone in their life, now they, they were born again. But that's just not true. The reality is that Satan will use whatever means necessary to blind people to the gospel and their need for Jesus. Now, are there some people that he uses deep and wicked iniquity to blind them to their need for Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. He twists the pleasures of this world and he makes it into a perversion and he holds them enslaved by that. But make no mistake, the world is filled with good, moral people who do not see a need for Jesus, and they are just as enslaved by Satan as the dirty, wicked sinner is. Because through their good morals, they don't see a need for Jesus. Satan will use whatever means necessary. Another religion, good morals, deep sin, the offense that they saw in church, you name it. And Satan will use it. Anyone who is not living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ is under the sway of Satan. They cannot free themselves. They desperately need someone to redeem them. But not only the sway of Satan, there's also slavery to sin. Scripture teaches that, that all of sin fallen short of God's glorious standard. But part of what we can miss about the reality that we've all sinned is that we sin because we're slaves to sin. Our natural bent as people is a bent towards sinning. Look at what Jesus said. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Jesus says that our sinful actions declare a greater reality than just the sinful actions. They declare that we are servants or slaves to sin. Again, that's a a huge thing to get in mind. And and I think it's important to see that it's Jesus that said this. Because often in our culture today, Jesus is seen as this guy that just kind of wants you to be happy. Just be happy and do what you want and kind of love other people and how you live doesn't matter. But the Jesus of the Bible, he says something vastly different. The Jesus of the Bible says if you if you live in sin, there's a reason for that. Not because the sin makes you happy, but because you're a slave to sin. And all people apart from Jesus are slaves to their sinful desires. And this is a a wide variety, a wide range of sinful desires. It would be sexual immorality, gluttonous, drunkenness, laziness, pornography. It would include things like immoral thoughts, idolatry, uncontrolled anger, jealousy, and even unbelief. Those who live in sin live that way because they are slaves to sin. 
They cannot turn over a new leaf and fix themselves. They cannot make New Year's resolutions and make their world better. They need someone to redeem them. But then there's also being captives of corruption. Now the corruption I'm referring to is death, decay, and wasting away. We are all dying. We are all wasting away. How many of us have figured out we can't do what we could do 20 years ago? Or maybe we can, but it just hurts a lot more than it did 20 years ago. That's a sign of of wasting away. And we are captives to this. But it's not just us, it's, it's everything. The creature, the creation itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Everything we see in our world testifies to our captivity to corruption. Earthquakes, famine, genocide, mass murders, poverty, injustice, disease, and death all reveal the decaying, dying corruption in our world. Now, as we, as we look at these things, it should be clear that humanity cannot deliver themselves from them. All the moral reforms that humanity tries to implement to tame natural depravity only serves to highlight the reality of depravity and the fact that depravity cannot be tamed. The more we try to do to tame it, the worse everybody acts and the more real it is. The human nature is desperately wicked. Humanity's attempts to deny the reality of Satan by moving into the, the realm of myth and legend fail. As people seem to almost inherently know that, that evil, terrible evil, it must have a source. I mean, there must be something besides natural human depravity behind people like Hitler and child molesters and serial killers. And then all the save the earth rallies in the world won't stop the earth from decaying. We can paleo and we can low carb. We can eat clean. We can take vitamins and we can have plastic surgery and we can do this and we can do that. And it does not stop the personal decaying. It does not hide the fact that we are captive to corruption. If anything, once again, it just highlights that we are captives to it. And there is nothing that we can do about it. Humanity is completely unable to fix these problems. We need a Redeemer. A Redeemer who would pay the redemption price. Scripture has always taught us what the price for redemption was. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, an animal was slain to make coverings for them. This revealed the price of redemption. A life for a life. When God redeemed the Israelites from Egyptian captivity, the blood of a lamb had to be put over the door so the lives of those inside would be spared. A life for a life. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a constant reminder of the cost of redemption. 
Every time they offered an animal to redeem them, they were reminded their sin had a consequence. There was a price for their redemption, a life for a life. We were not redeemed by corruptible things like gold or silver. The cost of our redemption is much higher. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 and 7 that we have redemption through His blood. A life for a life. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were merely a picture of the sacrifice to come. This is why Jesus came. Jesus' coming and dying for our redemption was always God's plan. In fact, Peter calls Jesus the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. God always knew how we would react and what we would do. And He knew there would be a Redeemer. And Jesus was always going to come and be that Redeemer. We must not, we cannot forget the high price that was paid for our redemption. And it's easy for us to read redemption through His blood and not really grasp all that goes in to that. All that Jesus did to purchase our, our redemption. So today I, I want us to take time and just look at what Jesus endured, what it means that we have redemption through His blood so that the price that was paid would be burned into our minds and have the impact on our lives that it's meant to have. Turn to Matthew 26, verse 67. Speaking about Jesus in verse 67, it said, Then did they spit in His face and buffet Him or assault Him. And others smote Him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is He that smote thee? There's already been a bit of a court scene. And now the hard stuff begins. The beatings, the mockings, the humiliation that came upon Jesus. Here we have the sinless Savior of the world who has done nothing but good throughout His life. Standing before the religious people, the religious leaders of His people, who should have been the very first ones to recognize Him and bow before Him. And yet what they find is they reject Him, they spit upon Him, and they violently assault Him. Now look down to Matthew 27 and 26. It says, Then he released Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now Pilate had a custom during the Passover to release one Jewish prisoner to the people. So he gives them a choice. Release Jesus, who Pilate knew was delivered because of the envy of the religious leaders and was innocent, or Barabbas, an actual criminal. And the people chose to release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. And then it makes just a, a quick statement that he had Jesus scourged. And again, that's one of those words that we can easily pass over if we don't know what happened there. Scourging or flogging. What happened was the person was taken to a post 
and they were stripped of all clothing. The Roman centurions beat you with what the poet Horace referred to as the horrible whip. And the horrible whip was a short whip with several ends, kind of like a cat of nine tails. And each of the ends usually had something like a jagged piece of bone, a sharp rock, or a piece of metal tied to it. And the people charged with giving the beatings would stand on either side of the victim. And they would alternate hitting them. And the entire backside of the victim was the target. Head to feet. Everything was fair game. The stuff that was on the end of the whip was sharp. So that when it hit the flesh, it would stick. Allowing the centurion to rip skin and muscle when they jerked it back to hit them again. The beatings were so severe that many victims died from this alone. And it was so severe that those who survived often died shortly thereafter. One historian referred to being beaten by the Romans as being half dead. Because even if they did survive... They were never the same afterward. When it says in verse 26 that Jesus was scourged, that's what it means. As terrible as the suffering was, it's not over. It says in verse 27 that the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. It's a lot of dudes. And they stripped him. And they put on him a scarlet robe. Keep in mind, his back is bleeding. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him. And they took the reed and they smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. More humiliation. Putting on him a scarlet robe and a crown of thorns and giving him a reed. And then kneeling before him, mocking him. Oh, you're the king of the Jews. Aren't you glorious? The crown of thorns would have likely shredded the flesh of his forehead as it was forced down upon him. Roman soldiers were big and burly guys, and so when they hit him, it came with significant force. And the whole band, it seemed, did this. The picture is, they did it until it was not fun any longer. They just got tired of doing it. And so then they took him away to crucify him. Verse 32, it says, And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him to bear His cross. Jesus was too weak to carry his cross on his own after the beatings he had taken. So somebody else was forced to carry it for him. When they were come to a place called Golgotha, that is a place, the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he tasted thereof, he would not drink. The giving him the vinegar or the wine mixed with gall, it was kind of meant to be a, a painkiller. Not, not out of compassion, not out of mercy. The Romans weren't known for that. It was just enough to numb the pain so that it wasn't overwhelming and they didn't pass out because the Romans liked to watch people suffer. 
But Jesus would not drink it because he could not have the pain numb. That was a part of the redemption price. Was feeling all of the suffering of the cross and all that went along with it. Verse 35, it says, And they crucified him, parting his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and they and upon my vestiger did they cast lots. They crucified him. Again, one word that was very powerful in Matthew's day when he wrote this, but is a bit unknown in ours. The crucifying, they laid him down on the cross. And they stretched him out in all the right ways. And they drove nails through his hands and his feet. They would lift the cross up and let it fall down into the hole. Where it would jerk to a sudden stop. When the the cross jerked to a sudden stop many times. The shoulders of the victim were pulled out of socket. Adding to their agony. See the way you die in a crucifixion is that you... You suffocate. And what happens is the only way to get air as you're hanging there is to pull with the nails in your hands and to push with the nail in your feet and to push up and get a breath and then go back down. And they did that with their shoulders dislocated with the nails in their hands and in their feet. And the Romans watched for pleasure. The mocking continues, you see in verse 39. When they had passed by, they reviled him, wagging their heads. This is just the people. Saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, thou be the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him, scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. He be the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. In other words, they mocked him as well. So there he is. Son of God. Beaten. Bloody, whipped, humiliated, crucified and hanging naked on a cross while people walk by and mock Him. Then in verse 45, it tells us that it goes on. And now He begins. All of this was more or less just the physical punishment of the cross. Now there's the spiritual aspect of it. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Most scholars believe that the darkness in the land comes as God the Father turns His back on God the Son. And for the first and only time in history, Jesus experiences separation From the Father. See, this is the spiritual aspect of it because the cross that Jesus endured, there was the physical pain. But physical pain doesn't really pay the penalty for sins against a holy God. There's also the spiritual aspect, the separation from God. In in this case, you could say 
that in verses 45 to 46, what's happening is Jesus is enduring hell in our place. All of God's wrath against all of our sin is being poured out upon Him. Now the fact that that Jesus says, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? And that God has turned His back and Jesus is dying alone from the Father. Something I always knew, but it really struck home to me when I became a dad. Because you know, as much as I, I love my girls... God the Father loves His Son more. And while I I could be very disappointed in decisions my girls made, I would stay with them to the very end, to the very best of my abilities. And yet, here, God the Father, in His immense love for the Son, and in His immense love for you and I, leaves His Son to die alone. For our sins. Then. Verse 50. He had cried again with a loud voice. He yielded up the ghost. The temple. The veil of the temple was rent. The twain from the top to the bottom. The earth did quake. And the rocks rent. Go ahead and turn back to Ephesians 1. Look at verse 7 again. When it says we have redemption through His blood, everything we just looked at is what it means. Redemption through His blood is the condensed version of all that we saw in the Gospel of Matthew. We have to remember that while redemption cost us nothing, it cost Jesus everything. We must never let our hearts grow hard to the horror of the cross. The price Jesus prayed paid for our redemption. It must always be fresh on our minds. And, and this is just kind of a rabbit trail. And I'll get back quickly. In light of what Jesus has done for us, is anything He asks of us too much? Is anything He asks of us unreasonable? Surely not. Now all that Jesus did for our redemption brought the forgiveness of sins. Made it possible for us to be redeemed from all the things we cannot redeem ourselves from. And I had intended on talking about everything that I had looked at earlier, but we don't have time for that, so we're just going to focus On being redeemed for the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus did. Paying that ultimate price that we saw. Made it possible that when we go to God through Him. That our sins are forgiven. And our sins being forgiven. By God is really a huge, huge thing. Because of how fully they're forgiven. It's a great passage. Says you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now through his blood, Jesus wiped out the record of charges 
that was against us. Now think of the record of charges, the handwriting of ordinances, as a ledger containing all of our sins. And that that ledger was to God, and it was kind of an IOU. God, here's what I've done, and I've racked up a great debt towards you because of my sin. A debt so large that, as we've seen, we could not pay it. But a debt so large that we had justly earned the punishment of death. But Jesus came and He took the penalty. And through His blood, He wiped out the debt in that ledger. And He nailed it to His cross. Now there are a couple of ideas pictured with that He nailed it to His cross. That He wiped out the ordinances that were against us. One is the idea of erasing. Some of the parchment used by scribes at this time was made from the skins of animals and was pretty expensive. So they had to use a special kind of ink that wouldn't really bite into the skin so that it could be used over and over again, sort of like a dry erase board. And so when the ink was written on there and whatever was erased, it was gone forever. There was no getting it back. And so if you had a, a ledger that said you had a debt and somehow that debt, that ledger was wiped clean, it was gone forever. And there was no way to get it back. So that's kind of the picture. The other idea associated with this is that of a criminal record. Criminals at this time were typically punished publicly. And when this was done, there was a piece of parchment posted near them with a, a record of all of their crimes. Here's why they're being punished in the way that they are. And when they had completed their punishment, if it wasn't death, the parchment was taken and a someone in the government who had the authority to do so, he would take a different color of ink and he would write the word tetelestai. Over the, over the top of it, meaning paid in full. And then once the ink was dry, it was folded up, it was given a, the official seal of the city and given back to the criminal who typically carried it with him all of the time. So that way, if someone else in the Roman Empire saw him and said, hey, you're, you're that person and you're guilty of this, he could pull it out and he could say, no, no, paid in full. And because his debt had been paid in full, he could not be charged with it ever again. Both of these are a picture of what Jesus has done for us. He has erased the debt so completely that God never thinks on them again. That's what Scripture would teach us. We are so completely redeemed and forgiven for our sins that there is right now in this moment, for those who are believers in Jesus, there is no condemnation for us. Now and forever. In Christ there is no condemnation for us. How great is that? I wish I had time this morning to get into all that was meant. Read Romans 8. Read it. Believe it. Live it. Be encouraged by it. But Jesus on the cross through His blood, He wiped that slate clean. He paid that debt full. And now we can never be punished again for those sins that were taken in our place. We can never suffer the eternal judgment for sin because of what Jesus has done. We are free, forever free, from condemnation because of Jesus Christ. And this was all done according to the riches of His grace. It says at the end of verse 7, the redemption Jesus purchased it is, is not a debt that God owed us. It is just a, a demonstration of His grace 
that He bestows upon us. I think of grace as just not getting, not, or getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. If your kid takes a rock and throws it through the window, they deserve spanking. If you choose not to give them that spanking, you are being merciful. If you choose not to give them a spanking and then take them for ice cream, you are being gracious. That is a picture of what happens with us. Not only do we not get what we do deserve, we are given all of these things that we don't deserve. All because of God's grace. Not that we've earned it. We were rebels. We were unbelievers. We were sinners. We had no desire for God. And yet God doesn't want us to experience those consequences. So Jesus came. And He took our punishment. And now according to the riches of His grace. We know the mystery of His will. We're made together one with other believers in Christ. We have a precious inheritance. We are, we live and we can be for the praise of His glory. All of that and so much more Jesus purchased for us on the cross. All of this is available, but only through Jesus. Because Jesus alone paid the price of redemption. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close your eyes. This redemption, it is available to all and it is for all. But it's not given automatically. Right? You're not redeemed by virtue of being an American. You're not redeemed by virtue of being raised in a Christian home. You're not redeemed by virtue of coming to church today. You're not redeemed by virtue of being baptized. You're redeemed by virtue of calling on Jesus to save you. Believing that He died for your sins. Accepting that your sins are your fault. It's not a response to others. It is what you have done. Knowing that you cannot save yourself. You cannot undo what you have done. You cannot fix it. And you desperately need Jesus. And you must call upon Him. You have to do it on your own. There is no person that can call on Jesus for your salvation but you. This morning... Jesus stands with His hand extended, saying, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you, and learn of Me. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. Today He's reaching out, wanting to save you, redeem you, lift you out of all of those things. But you must cooperate. You must call upon Him. What I want you to do this morning is as an action to demonstrate your desire for the redemption of Christ, your surrender to Christ, your belief in Christ, your calling upon Christ. I want you to raise your hand 
be like taking hold of Him and saying, Save me, Jesus. Lift me up. We're going to take just a, just a couple of minutes and we're going to pray. And you call on Jesus this morning if you need to. Do not let this day and this moment pass without doing business with God if He has dealt with you this morning.